Nothing quite like the music of Christmas, is there? What comes to your mind when you hear that word, Christmas? A university professor in a large university here in the United States several years ago asked the 40 students in his class to write at the top of their paper, Christmas. And then he said, now I want you to write after that word the very first thing that comes to your mind when you hear it. He then collected the papers and there were the typical kinds of responses that one might expect. Presents, tree, carols, family. Interestingly, not a single response came back the birthday of Jesus Christ. Perhaps that illustrates how cluttered the day has become with cultural, traditional, and commercial junk. Beneath the layers of tradition, some of which have pagan roots, frankly, including the day we celebrate, and beyond the blessed, the blast rather, and the blare of modern commercialism, is this central truth about Christmas, that it is the celebration of the birth of the Christ. Actually, when one says that English word, Christmas, he is employing the name of the one the day commemorates. The word Christmas comes from the word Christ, Mass, M-A-S-S. And the word mass comes from a Latin verb meaning to send. It's a derivation of that. Thus, the word Christmas means Christ was sent. Now, as we consider the meaning of Christmas, let's not overlook what Christmas means to the one who himself is the reason for the season, Jesus Christ. That is our theme for this morning, the meaning of Christmas to God the Son. To him, the meaning of Christmas might be summarized in three words I'd like to put together in this package this morning. Those words are commitment, self-abasement, and identification. I invite you to write those words down and think with me as we open this package and consider the meaning of Christmas to God the Son. The three words again, commitment, self-abasement, and identification. Open your Bible, please, to the book of Hebrews, to the 10th chapter of the book. Let me say, first of all, that to Jesus Christ, Christmas means commitment. Commitment to his Father's will, whatever the content. In Hebrews 10, the writer quotes from Psalm 40, one of the Messianic Psalms. Beginning in verse 5, Therefore, when he comes into the world, who is he? He is the Christ who is mentioned earlier in chapter 9 and verse 28. When he, the Christ, comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the roll of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. In that statement attributed to Messiah, we have a pre-incarnate declaration of his intention to do God's will. That was his mindset in his coming and then throughout his entire life's ministry. As he came into the world, he said, I come to do thy will, O God. And then we see that early on in his life, or even as a child, in pre-adolescent age, our Savior was with the leaders of Judaism in his day at the temple. And there he confounded them with the discussion that he was able to carry on, the depth of his understanding of spiritual things. And you recall that when Mary and Joseph finally found him, for they thought they had lost him, they asked him why he had done what he had. And he said to them in way of a question containing a slight rebuke, Don't you know that I must be about my father's things my father's business, we might say. You see, he had an understanding even at that early age of his special mission and his relationship as the unique son of God the Father. And then in his ministry, he said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing in his sight and in his suffering for sin. I remind you that in the Garden of Gethsemane, as our Savior looked into the cup containing the iniquities of the world, he said, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt, giving himself over to that death he found on that occasion becoming sin to be a horror to his sinless soul. But yet his mindset was the will of the Father, whatever the content of it. It seems to me that Christmas is a natural time for us who claim to be Christians to examine whose will we are following too. Are we following our own wills? Do we live out the song that Frank Sinatra loves to sing? I did it my way. That's the whole thrust of our culture. I'll live my own life. I would rather do it myself. Get all the gusto you can. Are we following our own wills? If so, then we follow not in the steps of Jesus Christ this Christmas. Because he came into the world to say, the will of the Father, whatever the content. Then we might also be living for the will of others. For there are some of us that are absolutely enslaved by what others say about us or think about us. What they say or think determines what we do and how we respond. We are so insecure in ourselves that we look for clues and signals in their, their face, the face of others. 
or their words so that we'll know whether we're accepted or approved or how to react or what to wear or what to say or whether we should go. We wait for the approval of our peers and our co-workers and live for the will of others. If we do, we're not following in the steps of the Christ of Christmas who came saying, Father, I delight to do your will, whatever the content. Our submission to God's will, our submission to God's will is a decision that rightly comes before we know the content of God's will. You see, that's when Jesus said this. As he came into the world, he said, before he started his earthly ministry, I come to do your will. Too often we try to make God's will a bargaining chip, and we say, God, I will do your will if, if you tell me in advance what it is. Or if you give me this, I'll do that. But God does not bargain with his will. God wants us to commit ourselves to his will in advance of it. As the Messiah, that must be the predisposition of our hearts. Lord, your will in my life, whatever the content may be. I know that there are some of you who have done that. But there are some of you that have never done that. I want to submit to you that you cannot live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and have a question mark on your life about whether you will obey what he tells you to do. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? If we own Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord today, we are saying, in essence, Lord, your will, whatever the content may be. As you and I come to Christmas and we celebrate it with meaning, I hope that we'll celebrate it with the same meaning that it had to him. That in our celebration we are saying to our Lord, your will, Jesus. Your will in my life, whatever that means. If it means going into the ministry, if it means teaching, if that means going overseas as a missionary, if it means being married, if it means being single, if it means having children, if it means having no children, if it means laying down my life as a martyr, Jesus, your will, whatever the content may be, What is the greatest fear that you have regarding committing yourself to the will of God? Whatever that is, understand that that fear does not come from him. It comes from the enemy who does not want you to experience the will of God. He wants to rob you of that fulfillment and that sublimest of joy of doing the will of God. Don't allow him to do that. I urge you today, whatever that greatest fear is that you have of God's will, to face that head on today so that you can go from this day onward into the Christmas season with that same spirit that our Savior had. I delight to do your will, Father, whatever the content of it may be. Will you respond that way today?
to the will of God in your life? Secondly, to Jesus Christ, Christmas means self-abasement. Self-abasement for others' welfare, whatever the price. Turn back a few pages to the book of Philippians in the second chapter, please, for the key passage here. As we think about what Christmas means to God the Son, we must include this thought of self-abasement. Whatever the price, we are urged in verse 5 of Philippians 2, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things who are in heaven, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Before his exaltation, there was humiliation. There was his willing self-abasement. We learn in the first place here that Christ existed in the form of God. Verse 6. That is, he existed with the essential nature of deity itself. Here we have a statement that affirms what we call his pre-existence. That is, he did not begin at Bethlehem, but he existed before that, eternally before that. And he existed as God of very God. However, his attitude was one of willing sacrifice for the sake of others, for the sake of you and me. If you have a Ryrie study Bible, you might be interested in note, in the note that goes with verse 6 at the bottom of the page, where it describes this phrase, to be grasped, from verse 6, which says, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Ryrie says, this verse may be paralyzed, (laughs) excuse me, paraphrased, and say it this way, who though of the same nature as God did not think this something to be exploited to his own advantage. You see, there's the point. As God, he did not consider that position something to exploit for his own advantage. In his self-abasement or his self-humbling, he renounced all of his self-interest. He laid aside his rights as deity. And the Apostle Paul goes on in these verses to describe to us three steps downward from his exalted position as the majesty on high. These steps, I think, challenge our human understanding. We we grasp 
these statements, trying to understand them, but they're hard. But the first step downward is found in what it says in verse 7. He emptied himself. That's the real key thought here in this whole text. He emptied himself. That does not mean that he in any way diminished his deity. He did not become less God than he was before. But he made a choice on that day that he came to Bethlehem. A choice to limit the prerogatives that he enjoyed as God. He chose to set aside his visible glories and to allow that to become veiled in human flesh. In so doing, he took upon himself the essential nature of a slave, it says, so that the great sovereign came into the world humbled as a servant, as a slave. He laid aside the prerogatives that he enjoyed as God. And he, secondly, incarnated himself. He was made in the likeness of men, it says. It says he was found in appearance as a man. Now what that means is that he was true man, fully human. But the language leaves room for his being more than that, for he was. For as well as being fully man, he was holy God. But he incarnated himself, allowing that glorious deity to be veiled in our humanity. Step number three, he sacrificed himself. He made the choice to be obedient to the point of death, even to the agonizing, shameful death of the cross. Those are the three steps downward of this one who abased himself. What was his attitude about coming? Self-abasement. Setting aside self-interest for the welfare of others, whatever the price might be. So complete was his renunciation of self-interest that he gave himself completely, completely for the sake of others. Some unknown writer has put it this way. He stepped from the measureless eons of eternity into the confinements of time and space. He laid aside the shining garments of glory to be clothed in the flesh of a helpless infant. He left the immortal fragrances of heaven for a world sick with the scent of mortality. He turned his back on gem-studded mansions to live where he had no place to lay his head. He waved aside the Father's loving smile to walk with men who spat upon him. He moved away from a throne of honor to be nailed to a cross, which was his curse. That was his willing self-abasement and sacrifice for you and for me. As we come to our own Christmas celebration on earth, how can we think to celebrate Christmas and to forget what it meant to him? How can we claim to celebrate it and ourselves be living for ourselves 
and to forget the welfare of others. That's why Paul puts this particular doctrinal statement just where he does in the book of Philippians. If we're back up just a couple of verses to verse 3, where he says to us, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You and I are to imitate this attitude in action. Christmas is a time of getting, but too often we allow the attitude of getting to dominate. That's because self-abasement runs counter to everything that our culture preaches. Our culture says, watch out for yourself. Live for yourself. The ethic that controls the culture of our world is duty to self. The highest good you can do is what is good for you. But Jesus Christ preaches just the opposite of that. He says, sacrifice yourself. He says, die to yourself. The world says, duty to self. Jesus says, death to self. It is a message that is absolutely contrary to what is preached to us from every other quarter in this day. That's why it's so hard for us to come to Christmas without thinking of getting, getting, getting. What does Christmas mean to the Son of God? It means giving. Giving oneself for the welfare of others, whatever the price may be. I'd like you to look also at Romans chapter 15. As we see another passage dealing with the same thought. Romans 15 and verse 1. Now we who are strong, that is, who are strong of conscience, ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, that is, the immature, the young, and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. How do we know when our desires please ourselves or please Christ? Does this mean that anything that would please me must be laid aside and sacrificed? Is anything that pleases me sinful? No. That is not the meaning. How do we know when what we want is for ourself, in a sinful sense, or if it's for Jesus Christ, and for ourselves, secondly, in a good and positive sense? It seems to me that if our minds are saturated with the Word of God, 
if we are living under the control of the Holy Spirit, if what we desire will bring true good to others also, then it is not sinful self that is involved in our decisions. That's why the psalmist was able to say as he does in Psalm 34, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That is because your heart will form desires that are right if you're delighting in the Lord. So that when there are desires within myself, when I'm walking with God, those desires may be fulfilled. And it's not sinful. On the other hand, if I'm not walking with God, if what I desire will ignore others' welfare or will hurt others, if what I want to do for myself is for my ego trip, for my pride, my selfish advancement, then that self is sinful. And it needs to be abased. It needs to be renounced. It seems to me that an awful lot of the problems that we confront in our world is rooted in this matter of pleasing ourselves. So often that is the the, the root of marital problems. Husbands and wives wanting to please themselves and not please the other, but to please Christ. That's why roommates run into problems. Isn't it interesting how God assigns roommates? Even when you think you've got it all figured out in advance. Even when you request that person that you're living with, and three weeks later you've come to understand that other person a whole lot better So often the conflicts of our lives come because we are not willing to abase ourselves for the sake of others. I repeat, it's not always sinful to do what we want to do. If we're walking with God under the control of the Holy Spirit, if what we want to do will really minister to others and be for their good, then we need not be concerned about what we want to do as being sinful. How wonderful to delight ourselves in the Lord so that the desires of our hearts are what God wants. And we agree together and He fulfills those desires. And we find what we want to be what He wants and we're satisfied and happy. What a great way to live. That's the way Jesus lived. Because as He stepped out of heaven to come down to this earth, as He laid aside that crown as we sang earlier, and came down, was born in that manger. That self-abasement was exactly what he wanted. That was the desire of his heart. Why? Because he knew he was accomplishing what the Father wanted, and he was accomplishing our welfare. Now you go out and live the same way. You treat others in your family the same way. You treat your roommate the same way. Let that attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And seek the good of others, and not just yourself. 
The meaning of Christmas to Jesus Christ involves self-abasement for others' welfare, whatever the price. Are you willing to pay the price? Sometimes we say, oh yes, I'll live for others, up to this point. Yes, Lord, I'll do it, but I won't pay that price. The price that Jesus was willing to pay for our good was his own death. Even the cross death. Will you choose today to let Christmas mean to you what it did to Jesus Christ? Will you choose to die to your selfish self-interests? Will you nail to the cross your self-centeredness? After all, that self-centeredness that all of us struggle with in the end only means a small life, a miserable life. And yet we struggle to bring it to the cross and to nail it there and leave it there. But if Christmas is going to mean to us what it did to Jesus, it has to include this element of self-abasement. Finally, to Jesus Christ, Christmas means identification. Identification with the world's wretchedness, whatever the burden. He himself was born into a poor family of an oppressed people. He was without personal or original sin and absolutely unique in that sense, and yet he took action in his life to identify with sinners over and over again. That was why he was baptized by John. That he might identify with the sinners who needed to be baptized with that baptism of repentance. That's why he chose to live where he did in Capernaum. That he might be located near sinners, both Jews and Gentiles. That's why he touched the lepers. Because he was willing to identify with those who were unclean. He associated with those that society of that day called rejected. He was called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He suffered as man. He was willing to identify with the world's wretched suffering. The sufferings that Jesus experienced, writes Donald Cole, during his incarnation included the internal and the external. Because he was sinless, he could not experience such things as pangs of conscience, delusions, anxiety, frustration over not having his own way, or the torment of hatred or revenge. Those kinds of sufferings are due directly to sin. Yet no human being was ever as sensitive to the suffering of others, and that element of his nature caused him great inner pain. Part of the pain and the sorrow of Jesus' life was the fact that he identified with you and me in our sin, in our wretchedness, in our misery. Whatever the burden, he was willing to associate with that, to identify with it. 
even to the point of in the passion fully identifying with our sin. Donald Cole goes on to write, Only in death did he become our substitute. His keeping the law in his lifetime did not help anyone. He did not keep the law for us. In dying, however, he met the law's demand that sinners must die. As Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He died, and because his death was vicarious, suffered on our behalf, it satisfies the demands of the law against us. Therefore, he redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law has no further claims against sinners who turn to Christ in faith. He further says, Christ assumed responsibility for the wreck that mankind through sinning made of itself and of the world. The sinless one was treated as if he were sin itself. He was treated by God as if he were cursed. Such humiliation, such intense suffering, such willing and loving sacrifice. We ought to fall at his feet and confess that he is Lord and Savior and altogether lovely. As the hymn writer puts it, Whatever curse was mine, he bore the wormwood and the gall. There in that lone, mysterious hour, my cup, he drained it all. If you and I are going to have the meaning of Christmas that Jesus had, then we must be willing to identify with those who are the rejected of our society. To those who are called unclean. To those who are the hurting and the searching. Around you students, there is someone who falls into that category. The one that is made fun of and mocked by others. Who's hurting inside. That one needs the touch of Jesus through you. And in that office where you work, dear lady, gentlemen, in that office there is someone there who is hurting or who is rejected or who is called not wanted or who is searching. Those are the kinds of people that Jesus identified with. He associated with them. That's what Christmas means. He came down here and associated with people like you and me and our sin. As we come into Christmas, let's approach it with that same meaning that we will touch the lives of others who need that touch of Him. There may be a neighborhood family or an abused wife or an abused child or a homeless person or some victim of injustice that you need to associate with, that you need to identify with, so that Christmas can have the same meaning for you that it had for Jesus when he identified with us. Christmas has meaning to us because of what it meant to Jesus. To him it meant that he was willing to do the Father's will, whatever the content. Are you willing? To Jesus, Christmas meant that he was willing to humble himself, to seek our welfare, whatever the price. Are you willing to seek the welfare of somebody else in the same way? 
To Jesus, Christmas meant that he identified with the world's wretchedness and sin, that he might save sinners. Are you willing to identify with the world's wretched and seek to touch them for Christ? I want to ask you three questions. Will you today commit yourself to the Father's will, whatever the content may be for your life? Though you don't know, of course, what tomorrow holds, not to speak of that relationship that you're in or those dreams that you have. But however that turns out, are you willing to say today, on this Sunday before Christmas, that you are willing to do the Father's will, whatever the content? And are you willing to commit yourself to the welfare of some other person in your life, whatever the price may be? Are you willing to humble yourself, to abase what self wants in you for the sake of another, whatever the price? Are you willing to identify with the world's wretched whatever kind of a burden that may be to you. To Christ, Christmas meant coming. And to you this morning, Christmas means coming to this place of commitment. I'm going to ask you to bow with me in prayer as we close the service. Has there been some application that the Holy Spirit has brought to your life? As we've thought about the meaning of Christmas to God the Son. What is your response to that application? What will you say right now? Lord, I pray that none of us will be able to leave this morning without making some application to our lives so that as we celebrate Christmas, we'll be able to celebrate it with something of the same meaning, Lord Jesus, that it has for you. And we pray this in your lovely name. Amen.